Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and you're welcome to this week's Big Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the conflict in the Middle East and the enveloping humanitarian catastrophe, as you'd call it, it's shifted the focus away somewhat from another appalling conflict, that in Ukraine. Just last week, Ukraine was in the news here for different reasons, more associated with what appears to be some form of compassion fatigue as the government debates whether this country has been, as some would term it, too generous to those fleeing war and as a result that a disproportionate number of refugees have been arriving here. Now, on one level, that kind of debate is entirely unseemly, I'd suggest, because after all, we're talking about people who are fleeing war and possibly death. But there is an issue as to whether in light of the prevailing housing crisis in this country, whether we can continue to accept these war refugees at the current rate on an ongoing basis. My guest today, John Wayne, knows a lot about the war in Ukraine as he is currently based there. He also knows a lot about the housing crisis in this country as he is from Cork and stays closely tuned into current affairs here. And he knows a fair bit about building homes in jig time in order to accommodate those fleeing war, as his current job is Senior Emergency Shelter Coordinator for the United Nations. I suppose at this point I should declare an interest, as John is also a very good friend of mine of over 30 years standing. Once upon another lifetime, we were both at a loose end and left for the far side of the world. And I think in some ways, John never came back home from that. And he has been involved in development and protection work in places across Africa, in Sri Lanka, Haiti. And prior to his current posting in Yemen, probably one of the most dangerous places on the planet. And he joins us today on the podcast. John, how's it going? Hi, Mick. Great to be with you. Uh, Love the podcast. Uh, Fantastic effort. Keep it up. Thanks. Okay, John, tell us first of all, where are you now? I'm sitting in Kiev, Mick. I'm based here in Kiev. I'm the um, Ukraine Shelter Cluster Coordinator. The cluster uh, has as a lead agency UNHCR. So just by way of background, the clusters were devised to improve coordination in humanitarian uh, contexts. Uh, And there's about nine or ten clusters. Shelter and non-food items is one of those clusters. And I'm heading up uh, the shelter NFI cluster here in Ukraine. Okay, and you say you're in Kiev, John. What, at this stage of the war, is Kiev like? What's it like on an everyday basis living there? Listen, Kiev is an incredible place. When you come here first, uh, you're just blown away by by the size uh, and, I guess, the beauty of the city. I mean, there's... It's, it's a massive city um, with, with huge uh, Soviet-style buildings. Um, and uh, everybody is getting on with their, their daily work uh, and, and making the most of it in a very difficult uh, situation. There are countrywide airstrikes, if not every day, every week. In Kiev, uh, when I first arrived, we had 
daily airstrikes um, where we would have to leave work and get down into an um, air raid bunker of which there are about a thousand uh, scattered throughout uh, Kiev um, until uh, the, the danger passed. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm learning an awful lot about uh, um, kamikaze drones, cruise missiles and, and uh, Patriot uh, missile protection systems um, and uh, early warning systems. Uh, it, it's quite incredible. A, a, an amazing city, a vibrant city in the middle of a war that is constantly disturbed by um, the, the threat of, of incoming um, missiles and drone attacks uh, against uh, crucial infrastructure. And currently, John, just in Kiev itself, I mean, you have missiles coming in and, and as you said, have developed some forms of protection. We've seen that actually in, in, in Israel most recently, a very sophisticated protection against rockets and that sort of thing. But is it currently the scenario that every so often, unfortunately, there are still casualties from these rockets as far away as Kiev is from the, the, the front line as we know it? Absolutely, there, there is, Mick. Um, you know, since the uh, full-scale Russian invasion in March 22, uh, the air raid sirens uh, in Kiev have been on for over a thousand hours. Now, there has been, in total throughout the country, 9,600 civilian deaths since the start of the full-scale invasion by Russia in March 2022. Now, if you compare that back to Ireland, and I'm not an expert on it, but I, I, I believe there was about 2,000 civilian deaths in 40 years of the Troubles in Ireland. There's been 10,000 civilian deaths in two years since the start of the current uh, Russian invasion. From the, the perspective of infrastructure, a recent World Bank uh, report, RDNA2, identified that there is 1.4 million residential buildings, so that's houses or apartments that have been damaged since the full-scale invasion uh, of March 2022. That has a price tag of about 50 billion US dollars to, to repair, Mick. 1.4 million, and I suppose just putting that in an Irish context, John, it's, I think it's, that's not too far off of the number of homes there are in the Republic of Ireland anyway. So you're talking about a, an equivalent scenario of most homes in, in this country being damaged by um, by incoming rockets one way or the other. That is pretty stark, all right. And tell me this, the, generally the impression we have here is that the war is largely confined, the front line of the war, to the east of the country now. Within the difficult circumstances that there are in Kiev and in the west of Ukraine, is the economy functioning relatively okay in line with how people are trying to get on with their lives? I mean, the economic situation is obviously down, but in large cities like Kiev, uh, people are incredibly resilient and business is open. Now, there is uh, a daily curfew of 12 o'clock, so everybody has to be off the streets, all businesses, restaurants, pubs, close by about 10 uh, p.m. in the evening to get everybody home. So in cities like Kiev, uh, things are functioning uh, uh, as well as possible. Despite uh, the disruption of, of uh, air raid, uh, possible attacks uh, and the ongoing curfew. But when you rightly said, as you move over towards the east, what we are calling the crescent uh, from uh, Cherniv in the north right around 
through uh, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and down to Khersonska. That is where most of the um, destruction and daily conflict is taking place. We've just um, completed our 2024 humanitarian response planning exercise, and 85% of our activities for 2024 will be in that area, the Crescent. However, you still can get strikes in other parts of Ukraine that are outside of the Crescent. Uh, for example, I was in uh, Kemelnitsky last week, where an attack on a military base left 350 houses uh, uh, severely damaged. So what we were able to do was supply construction materials into Kemenisky to the local authorities. It was amazing to see um, the, the volunteers, uh, the local communities getting together, doing rapid assessments of the damaged houses and helping each other to carry out the repairs, which were mostly to windows and roofs. So when these big strikes come in, they create a, a, a terrible uh, blast, which lifts roofs and houses and damages windows. So we have done thousands and thousands of window replacement, as well as providing roof sheeting uh, to repair roofs. But it, it was very impressive to see the resilience, the community effort and the hard work of ordinary Ukrainians just to try and repair the 350 damages in that particular oblast, which is, I might add, well outside the, the crescent where we will be putting 85% of our efforts next year. And John, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the nature of your job in coordinating that every so often you have to make an excursion over there to the east to the crescent and that, how would you describe it as being different in terms of the everyday experience in the likes of Kiev? It's extremely different. You you can sense it in people's uh, psychosocial well-being. You can sense it in in uh, the economy, the infrastructure, the physical damage is is hugely evident. I mean, last week we were in Kharkiv in the east. This week, one of our team is down in Kherson because we are now at the beginning of winter, and winter is about forty percent of our total needs uh, from shelter NFI. Um, we, we need about uh, $300 million to cover our, our winter plans for this upcoming winter. Um, so one of our team is down there with the local authorities in Kherson, just looking at what the humanitarian partners are planning versus what the needs are from the local authorities with regards to uh, uh, winter energy needs. Tomorrow, I'll travel to uh, Bucha. And you might remember from uh, the early days of the crisis, uh, it was the scene of some atrocious war crimes by the Russian armed forces during their brief occupation. We're going up to Bucha to have a look at some um, prefabricated container-type villages that were uh, constructed, as well as a project that UNHCR has called Core Homes, which are container homes that are being prefabricated off-site and then delivered to households whose houses have been completely destroyed as a temporary shelter solution while they rebuild their houses. So, yes, lots of movement. Um, and there's no flying here, Mick. It's, it's either by car or by train. The, the rail infrastructure is, is absolutely amazing. I hope to get out next week to see my family after six weeks in. But when I come back, I need to get over to Dnipro in the east from Lviv in the west. That's a train journey of 17 hours. Um, so 
you know, it's it's a vast, vast country. Um, um, from from a geographic perspective, nine Irelands can fit into Ukraine. It's it really is huge, but it's fascinating uh, to see the rail network functioning um, as as obviously no internal flights are, are allowed uh, within Ukraine. Right, and as of now, John, your sense, and you've been there, I think, since around last March. But as of now, do you have any sense? or get any sense of where people think this might end and what shape an ending might take? Look, I'm not a, a, a military or a security expert, but just from my, my humble opinion, um, there doesn't appear to be any end in sight, Mick. I mean, what has happened is the Russians have uh, bedded in in the occupied territories over in Luhansk, Donetsk and Zaporizh and the Far East. There is a front line of about uh, 30 kilometers, which has been heavily mined uh, by uh, the Russian forces when there was a lull in fighting last winter. The Ukrainians are doing their best to um, punch through that defense line. But apparently the Russians have rewritten the rule book on, on laying of mines. And, and that is very hard going, getting across that hugely mined territory, which is another um, risk for ordinary civilians. There are uh, many, many ordinary civilians killed by these um, uh, unexploded ordnance and landmines that, that have been placed all along that uh, frontline area over, over in the east. So it's, it's hard to see an end, particularly with winter coming. Um, things will probably slow down. The uh, attacks, the aerial attacks from from uh, cruise missiles and and kamikaze drones are, are are occurring daily over in the east with some horrific attacks on on markets, uh, on houses. The Kakovka Dam recently was was completely destroyed, causing damage to about uh, twenty five thousand houses and and massive um, environmental damage through to the flood waters. And the risk, again, of all of those uh, mines uh, which, which were disturbed during the flooding from, from the Kakovka Dam. Not to mention the reduction of capacity on the national grid as we approach winter. So there are some horrific strikes still happening. There are daily fighting going on over in the east. And then we get haphazard attacks uh, in the rest of the country. But this um, the air defense system, the, the Patriot uh, missile air defense system, appears to be doing a fantastic job in, in cities like Kiev. Uh, but when there is a large scale attack, uh, uh, say 30 uh, missiles, drones coming in, the uh, defense system will shoot down a number of them. And then it's the falling debris from, from the missiles that have been hit by the defense system that's causing uh, fierce damage on, on housing on the outskirts of Kiev and other large cities. Yeah, it, it is pretty serious stuff, all right. Um, no doubt about that still is, and I suppose we just we forget it when it's not as prominent across the, the, the international media, really, particularly in the last three or four weeks. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, the issue that reverberates all the way back to Ireland, of course, John, is that of displaced persons. In broad terms, the war, how many has it, has it displaced from their homes internally and externally, external to Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, the, the figures, the population of Ukraine is, is somewhere around, hard to get an exact figure on it, it's somewhere around 35 uh, million people. So what's that? Seven times the, the population of yeah. Ireland. Um, geographically, it's about nine times the size of Ireland. There are estimated to be about 6 million uh, Ukrainian refugees that have left Ukraine since the outbreak of, of the fighting. I think Ireland has taken in about 100,000. We use a family size of about three per household here. So 100,000, that's about 30,000 families, which for a country uh, of Ireland's size is is fairly significant. I again saw that the the house, uh, the homeless figures in Ireland is about 12,000 people. So, uh, you know, 12,000 homeless in Ireland plus 100,000 Ukrainians. It does put a huge strain on a country like Ireland who has a housing crisis of its own, as we haven't built many houses since the, the, the famous Celtic tiger crash a number of years ago, social affordable housing. It, and it takes time. Permanent housing takes time. You have to kind of distinguish between what we do as humanitarian shelter in NFI and what development actors should do as permanent housing. So we're kind of the first ones in uh, delivering repair kits for all these damaged houses, um, doing light and medium repairs, replacing windows, fixing roofs, doing heavy repairs. We have about, I think it's, it's, it's somewhere up to about 90,000 people in collective sites here in, in Ukraine alone. So collective sites would be schools, um, uh, university accommodation, uh, other accommodation infrastructure that's been retrofitted to accommodate internally displaced people whose houses have been destroyed. So the scale in Ukraine is far greater than the scale we have in Ireland. But our work is humanitarian shelter. It's immediate life-saving shelter, uh, as well as provision of non-food items. So we kind of look at it as the house itself and provision of adequate shelter. So that would be ensuring security of tenure, uh, the adequacy of the shelter, affordability, habitability, etc. Then what do people need to live in that shelter? So these are the non-food items. So kitchen sets, bedding sets, mattresses, blankets. Um, and then it's access to services outside that shelter. So they're the kind of three pillars we would have as humanitarian shelter experts. And John, I presume you're talking there about people who are internally displaced and, and roughly what kind of number, you said about 6 million are, are understood to have left the country out of a population of 35 roughly. How many are internally displaced that you'd be dealing with there? Yeah, internally there are about 4 million Ukrainian IDPs, internally displaced people. So these would be people 
who primarily had houses over in the east of the country. It's been destroyed. So they have left the east and they've traveled west to cities like Kiev. Kiev accommodates a lot of IDPs. So we have four million IDPs, but we also have about three million IDP returnees. So these are people who were displaced for a period of time uh, when when the Russians were occupying some areas, when those areas have been deoccupied, they have returned. So these people need support, not only while they are displaced, but also when they return to their houses. What we would like to do is work very closely with returnees to make sure that they have an adequate house when they return and they don't get displaced again. So within Ukraine, we have similar context in Ireland to Ukrainian refugees and the homeless because we have displaced people competing for housing with uh, um, uh, socioeconomic uh, deprived groups who are also looking for housing within the areas of displacement. So a lot of those challenges that you are currently getting back home, we also have to deal with here within Ukraine. Okay, so by my figures there, what you're talking about, you're not far off one third of the population either being internally displaced or having left the country. And as you say, depending on how the, the, the front line of the war has changed, a number of those who are internally displaced have attempted to go back home. Do you have any indication, I mean, I'm just, and, and not through, specifically through your office, but just in terms of a sense or through the media or our government or whatever, of people returning who had left the country now that the war has settled down as it has. And I'm, I'm not minimising, obviously, it's a huge impact on the east of the country, but in terms of what was, what it was thought, how it was thought it might develop earlier, do you have any sense of externally displaced people returning to the country? I don't personally have any numbers on that, um, but I am sure uh, because uh, Ukrainians are very proud people who love their country. I am very sure that many of those refugees would want to return if conditions were right to return. And that's part of our job is to try and make sure that the housing is uh, put to an adequate standard so that people can return. However, to add, there is also conscription going on here within Ukraine. So men of a certain age are not allowed leave Ukraine. Um, a number of my staff, I'd like to send them on international training uh, um, opportunities. Um, but before they leave, we have to uh, make sure that they sign a waiver, understanding that um, their job is at risk if they do not return to the country. Because it's very hard for men of a certain age to actually get out of Ukraine. So with that in mind, you, most of the people who are leaving are probably women, children, are, are elderly, uh, are people who have a medical condition uh, where they can avoid um, conscription into the army. Right, and just bringing it back here, as I say, you have a bit of knowledge about here, John, but just in terms of your general sense. I mean, as you point out there, Ukraine, it, it's primarily, it's it, it's their conflict, they're at the front line, the way people have had to adapt in terms of accommodating those who are displaced. You mentioned about university accommodation, schools, etc., all of that. Now, taking into account, obviously, it is not as immediate or as urgent here. But notwithstanding that, when you hear things like 
you know, for example, there's supposed to be a programme of modular housing. They've been talking about it for at least a year, if not more, and still very little has got off the ground. Does it strike you that things are particularly slow in Ireland in attempting to accommodate um, displaced Ukrainian people here? It does strike me that there there has been a lack of planning. I mean, you know, I know it, it all unfolded rather quickly in March 2022, but, but the conflict in Ukraine has been going on for 10 years. You know, the, the, the Russians first invaded uh, the Crimean Peninsula, um, uh, you know, what was it, ar- around uh, 10 years ago. Now, things have flared up since the full-scale invasion, March 22. But the crisis has been going on for, for quite a while. So Europe must have been aware of it. Um, with the homeless uh, situation in Ireland, I think I think the figure of, of 12,000 people, it's definitely been compounded by 100,000 people arriving on the doorstep. But is it a case that the government were unaware that this might happen? What, what contingency planning has taken place? Now, um, contingency planning is a big part of what we have to do in the humanitarian world as well. For example, we need to know what uh, NFIs, household items, all our partners have and where in case there is a big strike and we can respond quickly. But the question must be asked, what, what contingency planning was there for an event like this? It, it looks like there wasn't any. And as soon as the crisis happened, then then we had to react. Now, in fairness, I appreciate with planning laws, land prices and, and building costs that it, it's it's not an easy fix. To do permanent housing takes time. That's why we have our humanitarian housing. It's quick. It's fast. We're first on the ground. We're delivering plastic sheet. Uh, we're, we're, we're delivering emergency shelters, emergency life-saving shelter within 48 hours. We then need to have an exit plan. The clusters do not last forever. So we need to be handing over to somebody and, and working on strategies for that handover for, for the longer term uh, solutions. Now, it's going to be a, a long time rebuilding uh, um, housing infrastructure in, in Ukraine. It's it's going to take a long, long time and cost an awful lot of money. But in, in developed countries like Ireland, you, you would think we should have been somewhat prepared, although we probably were not ready for something of a scale like this. A lot of talk around modular housing. Modular housing factories are expensive to set up. Um, no, modular housing, everyone says, is fast. It's it's not necessarily cheap. Um, we are doing, as I said, um, prefabricated housing here, but they will cost up to $25,000 a unit compared to what we are doing for a, a repair in an apartment costing, you know, between $1,500 and $5,000. So, you bring that to, to the Irish context, and I'm sure the housing costs are a lot more than that. So it's expensive. It's land. There's planning laws. We, I don't, I'm not sure we have modular housing factories in Ireland, so they would have to be imported from Europe, UK and elsewhere. I mean, I, I mentioned to a Ukrainian colleague of mine that I would be talking to you about, you know, the, the Ukrainian uh, refugee situation, housing situation in Ireland. And I showed him pictures of tents and he was a bit aghast that we have, you know, Ukrainian refugees staying in tents. But his answer to me was, Give Ukrainians materials and, and a spot and they'll build their own house. 
There's something to be said in that too. Now, I know with planning laws and, and building regulations, it may not work. But the Ukrainians are hardworking, smart, resilient people. Give them space, give them materials, and they'll build their own houses, Mick. Oh, yeah, I could well believe it, John. And in a more general sense, um, there's no question you, you, you can see it right throughout the country, the way people have been displaced here, not just from Ukraine, but just because there are so many from Ukraine in, in, in recent years, have major contribution to make. And it's, you know, contrary to the basically the shite that some people talk, the, the immigrant in any capacity is always the hungriest person in society. That's the way the Irish were for years and... You and I both witnessed that abroad, Irish people, once they go abroad, they're willing to work anywhere. Similarly, anybody coming into this country would be a very much of a similar mind. I suppose the problem, though, is not so much the willingness of of, um, of Ukrainians or anyone else to build. The, the, the problems really lie in the likes of the planning laws and... Um, the notion among large sections of society, I think it's fair to say that they're willing to go along with most things as long as they're not disturbed and that there are thousands that does not apply to people. And I think one element of this that has been notable is the number of people who've actually taken Ukrainians into their own homes and uh, given them that level of, of accommodation. I, I, I think it's been a fantastic thing too. In a broader sense, John, and again, this is only if you've got a sense of it now, I'm not asking you in terms of your, your, your ballywick or your own expertise. Is there any, do you get any sense of how Ireland is regarded in a European context in Ukraine, specifically in relation to how things have been dealt with during this conflict? Yeah, I, I think personally, and it's always nice, I think Ireland is always perceived in high regard from a humanitarian perspective. I, I think we have had our own history of immigration. We know what it's like to be immigrants. We know what it's like to have to leave home. Uh, you know, we, we are perceived as a nation that has a very strong moral fibre and, and very strong humanitarian values. And, and I think... It was lovely today to see a letter uh, um, uh, from from uh, the president on on the situation in Gaza and how we have to have a, a ceasefire to the uh, absolute horror that's unfolding there. That's uh, that's always always great to see. And you know the fact that so many Ukrainians would like to go towards Ireland is also a testament to to the good nature of the Irish people. I mean, they see Ireland geographically apart from Russia. I mean, it couldn't be any further geographically apart from Russia. English speaking, because a lot of Ukrainians want to speak English and have some English. They see it having a, a, a very good education system. Education is hugely important to, to Ukrainians. And plus the offer that the Irish government put out there with uh, a free accommodation was, was hugely attractive. Now, I understand they are, are, are backpedaling a bit on, on that offer of a free accommodation. Um, but, you know, I think Ireland still has a lot to offer as a people. We are seen as a very attractive place be because of our sense of humanity and that's what, what Ukrainians um, are, are leaning towards. Now, if you go back to our humanitarian cycle, first it's it's emergency shelter like tents and plastic sheets. Then it's collective centres like we're seeing in Ireland, hotels, rental accommodation. We, we are trying to do a lot of work here in Ukraine on uh, 
trying to increase the amount of rental housing stock available. It's a challenge because post uh, uh, the split from, from, from the Soviet era, um, Ukraine had um, a privatization process where they gave private ownership of all the accommodation. So a lot of the apartments and houses here in Ukraine are privately owned and people have left because of the conflict. So it's hard to get an increase in in the rental market. We're, we're doing work on, on rental uh, market assessments, uh, rental guidance, but we would like to get IDPs into rental accommodation, give them six months rent, but then tag them onto livelihood opportunities where they can get work and then be able to pay that rent themselves beyond the six months period. Now, we need to work a lot harder to, to, as I said, get more rental stock, but that's also an issue in Ireland. I mean, I think we have a, a massive shortage of rental accommodation, plus there appears to be people leaving the rental market for one reason or another, and it boils down again to just having to spend time over the next number of years in, in increasing the housing stock as well as, as the rental housing stock. And perhaps it needs a change of attitude towards staying uh, long-term in rental accommodation. Like in the rest of Europe, you you, you have people who, who have lived in rental accommodation all their life. So, that rental market is is another big part. The modular homes, like you said, ours will be on a much smaller scale to what are being developed in Ireland. But all of that is done as humanitarian shelter, as, as then a catalyst towards the longer term house reconstruction sector. So we need to keep that going for a number of years, but allow the development sector to start building and repairing permanent houses uh, um, as soon as possible. Now, I'm not sure that's happening in this context and how soon we'll be able to get out of here and get home, but um, time will tell on that, Mick. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's a long, slow process and it's, it's a tough one. The other thing that just strikes me there, John, and in the introduction, I mentioned about the, the various parts of the world you have uh, been to, and I've often met you when you've come back from them, when, you, when, when you're back here for the odd time for a visit and what have you. But what strikes me just about it is I mentioned the likes of Haiti and Sri Lanka, where, where you've been. And what strikes me about there is, as I understand, you went in the aftermath of natural disasters, the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and I think there's an earthquake in Haiti. And then you have the likes of Yemen, where you were, where there's a, an awful war going on that most of the world has forgotten about. And now you're in Ukraine, where once again, the humanitarian disaster is man-made rather than in the aftermath of a natural disaster. And I just wonder, you know, when you see what nature does in the likes of Haiti and and Sri Lanka, and, and we can say that's unavoidable, and to a large extent it is, and you compare that to what us human beings in the broadest sense are responsible for and the devastation in the likes of Yemen and Ukraine. Uh, Do you you ever despair at the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, guess there's not much time for despair, Mick. I mean, (laughs) it's a busy world. I mean, look, for me, I I love my job. I, I, I consider myself lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I mean, you know, we all have forks in the road of life and, and, uh, one of those forks led me down this road. I, I, I got qualified as a as a quantity surveyor, construction project manager, and found myself doing, um, you know, a, a post disaster, post conflict, uh, a shelter where I I did my masters in post disaster reconstruction a number of years ago. So, for me, I've landed on 
what what is personally the ideal job and and, and I love my work and it, it, it's incredibly busy but you do of course despair I mean you you despair in many ways I mean again when you said we were going to have this chat today I just just checked a couple of figures last night and I, and I said what's what's the the global budget for for um uh, for military and, and arms worldwide, what's the world military spending? And a figure of two trillion dollars came up. The annual budget for 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 military—that's country defense systems and arms. I had to check how many how many uh, billions were in a trillion because the numbers just boggled mm. me. Apparently, it's a a thousand billion in a trillion. No, the maths get ridiculous. If you look at the global humanitarian overview, which is the plan of the complete humanitarian needs in the world for 2023 it's 41 billion dollars is what's needed to support the global um uh, 274 million people worldwide who need humanitarian assistance that's only two percent two percent of the world military spending something's gone askew mick uh with 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 how the world is 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 spending its money uh these days and if only a fraction of that money that's going towards military spending was diverted to humanitarian budgets i, I think the world would be a better place eh? oh no question no question Jack. as you say 40 billion versus 2000 billion 40 billion to try and keep people alive 2,000 billion, what else are arms for but to kill people? There is something very wrong. And I suppose the other element to that is uh, it's in places like Yemen and Ukraine, as we're seeing now, and also quite obviously in the Middle East, where the worst of these conflicts are wrought. But at the same time, it's all the... A lot of it's the Western powers who are sitting back in various places or or pumping the money into um into the arms that eventually end up in these places. But I suppose, John, on a personal level, the main thing is that you stay safe. You're 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 feeling safe enough there anyway oh, at the moment. Listen, Mick. <laughs> Uh, at the moment, safe enough. I mean, um, y- you follow the regulations, you know. Uh, when the alarms go off, the alarms go off on the phone, you get into a bunker or, or we have a two-wall a two rule, which means you get two walls between yourself and the outside. And, and the, the little flat I have here in Kiev is on the second floor of a five-story building. So following all the, the security protocols... Um, and you know, if you do that, you're 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 ninety percent safe. The rest is is bad luck, which hopefully, uh, being Irish, I won't uh, get get too much of that on me. You know, but but you know, Mick, you asked about frustrations, and and I think it's quite simple from my side. No matter what happens in life, just be good to people. You know, I mean, if more people were good to people, I, I think we wouldn't have as much much crisis in the world, and. When I first got into this work uh, back in around uh, 95, I, I, I found myself in Calcutta and I learned an awful lot about myself and, and humanity while I was there. I mean, it was a complete lifestyle change for me uh, coming from, you know, a particularly difficult period in life. And I met three remarkable women uh, while I was in, in Calcutta. One was Edith Wilkins, who was the goal um, country director running Siniasha, a home for homeless children. And she sent me on down to Mother Teresa to volunteer. And, and I got sent into public hospitals and, and was to bring people over to the Caligat home for the dying. And, and you know, it just 
a completely different uh, perspective on humanity. The other was um, Eleanor O'Driscoll, who was working in a place called Ashenakaton, which was a home where volunteers live with, with intellectually disabled people. And, you know, uh, when you spend time with people as, as broken as that, uh, and you see that every human being, no matter how broken, has something to add to humanity, it, it changes the way you look at it. I mean, um, volunteerism, the work I did in Haiti with the Haven Foundation and the Irish volunteers that went out there to build houses, it's it's incredible. That's what gives you the strength, Mick. And I would encourage anybody who is possibly uh, feeling a bit aggrieved by the amount of, of, of um, Ukrainian refugees that have come into Ireland, just spend time with with them, spend time with people who are more broken than yourself. And and I think I think that'll teach you a bit more about humanity and hopefully it'll 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 change some of that balance between between war and good making. Very well put, John. And the main thing for the moment is you stay safe between now and Christmas and you're back and we'll hook up with you then. Yeah, but Mick, the last thing, I said three women in Calcutta. The third woman I met there was my, my wife, Sinead, my long-suffering wife, Sinead. And, <laughs> you know, without without her support, I could not do do what I'm doing. So it's 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 down to the women in my life, Mick. And uh, my my wife, Sinead, uh, without her support, um, allowing me to to get back out into the fields, to places like Yemen and Ukraine, where where I feel um, I want to be with the experience and work that I have, I, I wouldn't be able to do to do what I'm doing. So it's 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 those remarkable women we meet along the way, Mick. Absolutely. And. I agree with you completely and, and and you have to say there there are sacrifices and somebody like yourself there's family sacrifices and quite obviously in Sinead has taken on an extra burden the whole thing there's a lot of people putting shoulder to the wheel and, and uh, as you say there's a lot of people to benefit from it as well which is, is, is a fantastic thing to um, to be involved in John we'll talk to you soon one way or the other take care of yourself thanks very much Mick keep up the great work lovely to talk to you Slán Slán John Folks, thank you very much for listening. Thanks to JJ Vernon, our engineer, as always. We'll talk to you again next week. Stay safe, everybody, between now and then.